Well, hello and welcome to Manx Radio's Countryside with Kiri Kermode and Simon Clark. The last in this current series, Kiri, but packed full of, well, all sorts, ice cream, uh, books and poultry in marts. A full Christmas dinner. Yeah. I went along to the book launch of Good Clean Fun, which is a book that uh, Jill Drower has uh, written. And it's got some wonderful, wonderful stories about the Cunningham's Camp, which uh, opened in the Isle of Man, believed to be uh, Britain's first holiday camp. So a very interesting chat I had with Jill. I went around the ice cream factory and you couldn't make it. I so we know. Had Ian and Greg Davison uh, went around there and a wonderful setup that they've got there and telling us about the, the Manx produce that they're using in that. So uh, that was a, a wonderful trip. You can listen to that. And you uh, went to see Peter Quayle. Yes, a very busy man, Peter Quayle, throughout the whole of the year with the machinery sales and the livestock sales. But this one, the Christmas poultry sale, it's always a special one out there at uh, Knockhaler. So if you are free, get out there and uh, have a have a sing song and a mince pie and just join in the festivities. It's a great day to get your Christmas dinner. It is indeed. Here all is then in this week's Countryside. <laughs> Well, first, Kiri, what do you know about holiday camps? Have you ever been to Butlins or any of the Alton Towers, wherever they call any of them? No, not really. We have visited some of the parks with the Isle of Man Athletics Club, you know, on our night times out, but I've never stayed at any of them. But great fun had by all. Lots of people go to centre parks now with families, and especially at Christmas time. It's really magical, isn't it? Yeah, well, uh, the... Cunningham's uh, Holiday Camp, which was uh, originally at the House Drake here, uh, just off Honkin Head, uh, that was uh, supposedly Britain's first holiday camp. And uh, there's a new book being launched by author Jill Drower, who uh, has been heavily involved in it and a big connection with it as well. The book is called Good Clean Fun. And I firstly congratulated her on the book launch and said to her that uh, proved popular by the amount of people that's turned up. Yes, it's been very nice to have so many people here. Yeah, and the the shops have been fantastic too. We've had quite a lot of uh, interest there, so it's been absolutely everything I could have wanted. Now, the the history of Cunningham's Camp isn't just a particular interest of yours. It's been part of your life, hasn't it? Yes, well, um, my great-grandfather and great-grandmother were the... the the couple who started the holiday camp in the first place so I've always had a a family interest, especially my mother who adored holiday camps and took us to holiday camps as children we didn't really know the connection until she started telling us and she showed me a Camp Herald once when I was about 12 or 13 so I think that's when I got interested and I realised that there was a big connection because all the things that were happening at Butlins were also things that had happened many decades before at Cunningham's. When you say about the influential in in the holiday camps, basically it was it was the start of them, the, the first yes, sort in, of ones, wasn't it? Yes. And, and how far back does it go? Well, um, Cunningham himself said in his brochures from 1887, and I think that was their first outings in Liverpool. But I think you could say that it's definitely was a holiday camp by 1898 because in our modern understanding of a holiday camp um, they would have uh, 
mass it was a mass holiday it was um, you didn't do any chores which on a camping holiday you would do um, and there was all this camaraderie and entertainment emphasis on sport have a go talent competitions all those were there from 1890 you could definitely say from 1898 those were features of the holiday camp and by the way I think that Cunningham coined the term holiday camp that's the furthest back I've got it points to it being Cunningham who's uh, invented that expression to differentiate it from um, military camps like the boys brigade so he wanted to make it different show that it was leisure not um, military now he started it I think because he's seen a lot of strife and trouble that youngsters could get into at that time absolutely it? it was very much philanthropic in its uh, in its beginnings and he came he was born and brought up in the most difficult area of liverpool which was the north end and there there was a, there were brothels and beer houses on every street it was full of crime lots of antisocial behavior and this is what he grow, grew up in, in in this district of town and he was very aware from early on of the terrible poverty i mean total destitution uh, an infant mortality rate of about 50 percent i don't know the exact figure but it's in the book and uh, and so he was very struck by that he was an evangelist from early on yeah but this, I suppose, just started with trying to help a few people, you know, even if you help a dozen people, you know, to get through and give them something to do. Um, this just caught on, didn't it? Yes. Well, I think there was a, 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 the belief, it was muscular Christianity, and there was a thought that if you could get kids out into the countryside, breathing fresh air and uh, doing sports, and if you could give them a training in a skill such as shorthand or metalwork, then they would be able to make something of their lives. And this was terribly important to him. And that's how it started. That's how his um, work started, really, with gospel halls and then linking up into these working lads institutes. Uh, how, 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 what was the reason for it, for it just being the boy? really then was it because the the girls weren't in trouble well you have to look you have to look back i mean it's one of the difficult things of social history is you have to not jump to conclusions but the other things you mustn't judge things by modern standards i mean if you go back to the 19th century and you think of a typical school it would have a boys entrance and a girls entrance and boys and girls was men and women were seen as living in complementary but separate spheres and it was just such a different attitude. I mean, if you look at bathing, they wouldn't have had mixed bathing. And it, 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 to them, it was in, unthinkable. So it's just, you know, the That's values of that time. Yeah. I mean, it came to the Isle of Man, though, then. Yes, it came to the Isle of Man through the Florence Institute. And the idea actually came from Elizabeth Cunningham. And one of the bits in the book is uh, to show that actually it was a team effort. It wasn't just... Joseph Cunningham on his own and it was Elizabeth Cunningham who looked at a, an advert in Liverpool and wanted to take her two little toddlers away on holiday and saw how there's advert for Laxey saying it was a wonderful holiday resort and so she took her boys there and that's how the first um, camping holiday ended up in the Isle of Man and from there it grew and it was a great success and everybody loved it here it's a beautiful place lots of fresh air um, rural charm and and so that's how it caught on 
some marvellous pictures in the book and illustrations about how they were with them uh, sort of some like Indian looking tents in a way yes, they, you know all lined up and because of the, the Manx weather it had to move did it yeah well it was it was first of all it was at house strike and it was very windswept and it was a cliff edge basically and um, you know it did on one it, two, it was 19.3 that 60 of the tents were blown down and it really did have to go to Douglas but what changed when they went to Douglas was that it, the, the rural retreat in this idyllic um, bucolic setting was moved to a thriving holiday resort and to be there and to be able to go down to uh, Douglas Seafront and go to the Gaiety and do dancing and, and meet female and have meet female company that was the, the big thing that changed it um, so that it stopped being men only of course it was men only in terms of the camping fields but they had lots of access to meeting people so it became you know the it would have gone viral if we'd used today's terms you'd say it have, it went viral yeah, it's the sort of start of the change of things yes it? Yeah. it really was and the, and the way it went to one of course in Douglas as you said Douglas was a was a massive holiday resort it was, then from it was was it starting then well, it was very. It was seen as an exotic place, and it was, and it was seen as an absolute thriving holiday resort. And it was. It had so much going for it, and um, it was a magnet for people. Really, it was very popular. Well, we heard about change there, you know, with the with the men meeting up with the girls and things, you know, and being able to enjoy life a bit more. I mean, but things moved on, I suppose, in the sort of holiday and the holiday camp market, did it? Yeah, well, I, I think the, the, the great sort of time we think about is the 50s and the early 60s, but the, I would say by the 60s it was beginning to be challenged very much by package holidays. And, I mean, we think now, of, you know, holidays suitcases with wheels all inclusive all done online this this was you know this is all going to come up and you could see the beginnings of the end of the holiday camp by the mid 60s and early 70s when did it close it closed in 1939 for the uh, because of the war but in 45 they decided not to open it again and they decided to sell on to some to um, Douglas holiday camp syndicate mm. So, um, but it seemed to go downhill at that point um, because it was a fantastically difficult thing to run and the Cunninghams had been in baking and, and catering for, for generations. How many were they serving at the dinners? 2,500. In the one go? Well, 2,500, I think, probably in, two th- in 99. Mm. And when Billy Butlin started, he was... It was about 800 in Skegness. So it was very large-scale catering very early on. And uh, they they were good at it because they were large-scale caterers anyway from Liverpool doing bakery, you know, had it in the bakery trade. So, but so when you got sort of investors deciding to run the holiday camp, I think it was a whole different thing. They didn't have the experience of the kitchens. They didn't have the, you know, the, the years of experience. So that's part of its decay the book tells it in words and wonderful pictures as well and it's yeah they're a, lovely a pictures and i'm grateful for the, yeah thank you but uh, there were there's great generosity from the people who had the illustrations so uh, i'm grateful to that too i was talking there to jill drower the 
author of the book Good Clean Fun. And that's available from all good bookshops around the Isle of Man. And also, if you can't get it on there, you can get it from the Amazon Marketplace. Not sure you can get it from Castletown Marketplace or anything like that, but uh, have a go at trying. But really interesting that, you know, um, them the ideas that they had to try and save them people from them bad areas getting into trouble all the time and setting up this camp and uh, you know it's just a marvellous thing and look what it brought you know it Butlins went on from there and you know believed to be the Britain's first holiday camp which uh, it's just something special. Just men only, though, Kerry. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Wow, how things have changed. But no, what an opportunity for those men and, and to escape some of the, the poverty like in Liverpool and mm. places like that. Um, it must have been just such a relief. And, and the Isle of Man is such a tranquil, safe place as well. And, you know, down on the on the harbour there and on the promenade where it was always so full of people, you know, back in those days. So it must be nice to meet new friends. Yeah, it's a fascinating book and uh, uh, sort of very close connection that Jill's got with it as well and with the great grandparents and everything involved in it and uh, of course there's illustrations of the books uh, you know the pictures in it absolutely wonderful that's so uh, that's uh, make a wonderful Christmas present for somebody but uh, Kerry the the last Mart of the year is coming up I think as well Yes, a very special time, the Christmas Mart coming up right before Christmas on the Saturday there. And I catch up with Peter Quayle to hear a roundup of the year of the Suckler Calf Sales and the Breeding You Sales. Peter, well, that's the end of another year with Central Marts. Well, just about anyway. How has the year been for the breeding stock? It's been a strange sort of a year. I think it's been weather related. Mm. Um, the sheep sales, they went probably better than we thought. Uh, ram sales were down a little bit or, or quite a bit at times, but everybody realises that there has to be reductions in prices. Um, yeah. Just the way the trade is away as well. Um, and it hasn't been helped by some of the uh, problems at the meat plant. I, don't, I always seem to pick on the meat plant, but uh, <laughs> just the, uh, the slow booking system and the unknown uh, time of waiting for stock to go in and then it's like another month then afterwards before they're paid so it's like three or four months for for selling lambs which is just very difficult to work around so that's had an impact on some of our sales uh, the calf sales that the, they went reasonably well it has been a concern that quite a few people have been selling cows this year so that's the end of them the end of the suckler herds of some of those herds and some of them are our best customers so we won't have as many cattle to sell next year because those cattle are no longer about. There's other people going out of sheep as well. So the whole industry seems to be um, downsizing and uh, that's worrying. It is really worrying. And you see the prices away. They, they have collapsed a little bit. And it does, like you say, Peter, knock on to here. But the, the price of lamb at the minute in the meat plant seems to be good. And you've got a good sale on Wednesday of more lambs. Yes, we've got some lambs and some cattle in tomorrow, um, which is unusual for this time of year, but hopefully there'll be some trade. There's some good crops of rape about, so the, the lambs will be hopefully in demand. There are good prices at the meat plants. We can't argue about that, and there are good pl- prices for cattle, but it's just the getting them in on the times when you want them, when they're ready, and that's the part that the new committee don't seem to have um, been able to work around. Yeah, it must be that communication. It needs to be, you know, spread you know, in newsletters or whatever, you know, meet farmer meetings with the committee to keep us up to speed because, you know, it's business focus. The, the farmers need to know so they can produce the stock when it's really wanted. 
Yes, I mean, we've got Tim Baker, who's very enthusiastic and helpful, uh, Phil Parsons, and others on the committee who seem to be have their hearts in the right place, but they're just it's just not getting right through in the right way. But maybe for next year, they might turn things around and make things more clearer, more transparent, and um, certainly helpful on selling our stock. Definitely. And a really happy occasion coming up, Peter, with the annual Christmas poultry sale this Saturday. Yes, uh, it doesn't seem long since last year, the last poultry sale, but uh, we have a Father Christmas. Uh, we have the Crosby Silver Band. It all starts at one o'clock. Um, we have a few carols for half an hour, and then we sell some good Manx turkeys, some geese, hopefully ducks and chickens as well. It is a great turnout. The general public love coming to see it. And it's a great time of year, isn't it, with all the decorations around the mart. And sometimes we even have an ice sculpture. Uh, we do. I'm not sure the, the ice sculptor's away at the moment, but he does turn up with some good things at times. Um, <laughs> yes, it is. It's, it's um, the end of the year and uh, a bit of fun. And quite a lot of money is usually raised for charity, um, which is always nice to finish off. But it's always nice as well, Peter. It's not just the, the poultry side. There's lots of veg. There's people selling other wares as well. You, you can get a full Christmas dinner. Yes, there's a good assortment. Um, we've got Sheila Gorn with the vegetables, as good as anybody. And uh, we're hoping to have other people selling maybe some meats as well. So come along. We always have a good crowd. We've got plenty of room for parking. Just hope the weather's kind. But it goes on regardless. This is it. So that's out at Nokalo at 1 o'clock on Saturday. Saturday the 22nd, yes. That was Peter Quayle from Central Marts talking about the year and the forthcoming Christmas Mart. He's a mighty ambassador, Peter. There's not much uh, flusters him, really, is it? You know, he's a good, calm sort of character. But, he, well, that's what we see of him. <laughs> <laughs> he does really well weekly at those marts, getting the bids out of the farmers. And you know when it's a sticky time in agriculture, he's there battling away and some cattle take a good few minutes to sell, but he always gets usually the price that the farmer wants. But uh, the Christmas mart is always a special time with the silver band and all the tinsel and decorations that his family and the mart staff go to put up around the mart. So that is a really, really nice festivity to go along to that if you can. Yeah, and long may that sort of... Uh, continue that sort of um, event you know the, the, the work that they put in to give it that feel that it is Christmas isn't it it's a real real point in the calendar now and so many public come and, and it's not just turkeys and geese there's lots of other things you know there's wreaths and vegetables and, and woodenware and different little crafts that are around the Isle of Man will come together that day so it's not just poultry there's lots of other things and there's always a great mince pie there <laughs> You're listening to Countryside here on Manx Radio with Kiri Kermode and myself, Simon Clark. Well, I'm going to wet your lips now, Kiri, and talk about ice cream. And uh, I was invited round to Davison's Ice Cream Factory in Peel by Ian and Greg uh, to have a look around their factory and, uh, of course, uh, the amount of Manx produce that they're using in there um, to produce this Isle of Man ice cream. And uh, I went to the factory, met them there to have a look around. Firstly, I spoke to Ian, who, uh, well, put it to him that he's got some new machinery looking there. Yeah, this Simon. We, we've uh, invested heavily this year. Um, we've bought new machinery in. Um, the other machinery we've had, we've had from brand new, and it's 22 years old, and it was just coming to really sort of the end of its work in life, and we had to consider our future, and then we've decided to, to buy and invest in new machinery 
which quadruples our production capacity uh, here in Peel. It's, uh, it is a big commitment, isn't it? Because obviously there's probably a lot of competition out here and uh, you've decided to, to take the plunge uh, with, with going forward with this machinery. Probably not a fiver in Mooch's market, this stuff. No, I mean, our, our investment this year, um, there's 300,000 pounds worth of new machines here. Wow. Um, yeah, there is, it's, a, it's a very competitive market, the ice cream market. I mean, we're up against English companies bringing in ice cream into the Isle of Man using cheaper ingredients than we can buy here, um, using things like palm oil, um, vegetable fats. Um, and, and we try to use everything obviously that's local which unfortunately has an added value to it so we're paying more money to use local but the quality of the product that we produce is, is just that much better on grass fed cows is superior to what comes in from the UK I know there might be some secret ingredients in, in your own ice cream. I'm not asking you to reveal them, but I mean, is, is the fundamental basis of ice cream fairly simple lot of ingredients? Yeah, um, over the years, we've adapted our recipe. Um, and I think our ice cream at the present time, I don't think we could, we could do anything to it to make it any better than what it is. Um, each manufacturer, they're all secret, so they all hang on to their own ideas. They, they'll never divulge really what goes in, but the overall basics are good quality Alaman milk, Alaman cream, English sugar, and that's your three good ingredients in ice cream. Right. Obviously, the the trick, the the trouble, I suppose, is that you, there's nobody producing some of the ingredients here on the island, and and I suppose the the bulk of ice cream is milk and cream in that side of it is it it is i mean we do obviously have to use um some ingredients so we have to buy in from the uk so we do use a milk powder which is unfortunate but, but there's no milk powder producer here on the island and we, we we buy in english milk powder so we're not buying it in from uh, the continents um either english or irish uh, milk powders and we use sugar which is british it's usually tate and lyle You've recently won quite a few awards and um, got the, the proper labels for your Isle of Man made ice cream as well with the support and the local trades. I mean, the investment that you've put in as well, I mean, is that, do, you, do you get the government behind you on these sort of schemes? Um, well, over the years, we have, we've entered the ice cream competitions for many years. Uh, we've probably got near on 300 different diplomas. We've won gold medals. We've been... We've missed the Champions of Champions Cup, which at the ICA, which is the Ice Cream Alliance competitions in Harrogate. And we've missed the, the Supreme Champions Cup on two occasions by half a mark. Um, but we've got numerous gold medals um, at, the, at the ice cream competitions. Going to financial assistance from the Alamein government, we haven't had any, unfortunately. We did actually apply to get financial assistance. Um, and I felt we were, this year, we were kicked in the teeth by the, the department. Um, and we've bought all of our machinery without any assistance from the Isle of Man government. And we'd like to take the credit, obviously, ourselves for having to do what we do without any, any financial assistance being given to us. That is encouraging. The, the encouraging side of that is that you must think the, there's a future here because it's a nice family-run business you've got. Yeah, um, we've been going, I think, ice cream side now for 27 years. Uh, and it's run by, my father came into the business when he retired. He used to work at the hospital. 
and when he retired he came to work into the business and my oldest boy Greg he is here he does all of our production capacity um, and and he looks after he's doing all the production um, and looking after all the machinery um, so it's nice it's nice to have a continual a continuing family business here uh, it's a Manx we're, you know we're, we're Alaman people so um, it's nice to keep on going exports as well as much of your ice cream go off the island and, and is this part of the reason for the expansion yeah the expansion we we can see that the Isle of Man is a limited market um, obviously it's a shame but the tourism figures have dropped again for this year um, and we need to be able to keep on expanding really the business and we're looking at the UK market we have sent ice cream into Ireland this year um, and we've sent ice cream out to uh, United Arab Emirates. We supplied the, the royal family in uh, UA, UAE. <laughs> Never. Wow. Yeah. How did that come about? <laughs> they were actually here on the island. Um, we had supplied some of the ice cream and some of the royal family had been here on the Isle of Man, which then led to a shipment being picked up at Ronald's Way um, via private jet. And we had then in the last month actually sent our first order out to United Arab Emirates um, to Dubai um, to supply the royal family um, and we did get good help from actually from the environmental health here because there was obviously different criteria we had to meet in order to get our shipment out and um, we got good help from well I'll name the guy Dougie Stewart who's who's one of the environmental health officers Dougie was really good, came down, had invaluable help for us. Mm. Because I suppose there's a, a lot of areas that have got to tick boxes with these sort of live products, so to speak, is there? Yeah, we just got to make sure that everything that we, we didn't want the shipment to arrive in Dubai end up in customs and then not be able to be released because we didn't have the correct documentation in place. So it's taken a good few months. Um, with consultation with the British Embassy, we were speaking, had um, video call with the head of business at the British Embassy in Dubai in order that we met all the criteria um, and with the Chamber of Commerce here on the Isle of Man we had to have a certificate of origin to send our product away and, and it did take a few months but we managed to get everything in place and with the health of, help of um, Defer and Dougie Stewart um, we had all the certification and everything went first class. So now with this, uh, the production can be higher, so you can you can sort of look further afield. Is that the, the case? Yeah, I mean we'd like to export into the UK market, into England. Um, there's a big market there. There is for the quality of product that we produce. There's an awful lot of producers in the UK uh, making ice cream, but there's not many of them making good stuff. That's the difference. Um, we like to think that our ice cream is up there with the top manufacturing companies in the UK, and I think. You know, I can name on sort of one hand all the ones that win all the ICA medals, uh, and they all produce ice cream to the same sort of standard as we, but there's, there's very, very few of them. They can produce it cheaper, though. Well, they can because they obviously haven't got that stretch of water, so they're not having to ship any form of ingredients in. Um, they can buy cheaper across. However, um, the ones that are shipping in, uh, there are making the cheaper ice cream are using cheap ingredients like whey powders and palm oil we you know we don't use anything like that in ours um, we could cheapen our mix but you know we, we 
everybody in the Isle of Man's got to know what Davison's ice cream tastes like and that's the way it's going to remain for as long as we stay in business. So Greg, uh, just talk us through the process then here. What, what's the first thing that happens when you, you're going to start a batch of ice cream? Um, well, the first thing that would happen is obviously we would get the cream in from either the Alaman Creameries, um, who are our biggest supplier of cream. Um, we also buy from Ale and Dairies in Salty and Cool Brothers of Port Erin. Um, so that would be the first thing that would come into us. Um, all the ingredients then on the same day as coming into us would then be boiled up in our tanks. So before ice cream's frozen down, we have to boil it, which is a pasteurization process. Um, it basically kills any of the harmful bacteria that might be still present in the milk. Although over on the island, every bit of milk that usually comes in has to be pasteurized anyway um, before it's shipped out. So it would be coming into us pasteurized already, but we then pasteurize further on just to make sure um, and to take that risk element away. Um, all the ingredients would then go into our tanks as I, get, as I said, heated up. Um, they then go through our processing equipment, which um, along the way breaks down the fat particles within the ice cream um, in order for them to basically seal together and stop them from separating when they get pumped into our holding tanks. Um, after they've been beaten up um, in the homogenizer, they go through a thing called a plate cooler. The plate cooler will then take the, the mix, so the mix will be going in at about 78 degrees and within three seconds it'll be coming out the other end at two degrees wow. um, and that chill process stops any bacteria from growing again so the faster you can take it down from that temperature um, is the quicker or is the, is the least bacteria can grow in it um, it then gets pumped out at three degrees into our holding tanks where it can stay for a, a maximum of um, seven days um, before we then process it further into ice cream Wow, and the, the two um, holding tanks today, well, you've got four there, but two have got the stuff in them that uh, you've been making, and you've been making chocolate today, we um, and real chocolate in it as well. Yeah, so the same base mix makes all of our ice creams, so um, the only one that's slightly different is the chocolate, which you were lucky enough to see yeah. today we're coming out. We use proper chocolate in our, our chocolate ice cream, but we have to add it into the boiling process because if you were to add it in when it was at three degrees, it wouldn't melt. <laughs> so we add it in while it's in the boiling tanks, um, which allows the chocolate to melt, and then it's, it's then pumped into the holding tanks from there. But yes, it is proper chocolate that we use within it. And this mighty machine over here with the pipe on, not much good to the listener, but um, I, the tubs are lined up there. It, it, that doesn't seem an automatic process though. No, everything, although we use machineries within the process, um, the continuous freezer, which freezes down the, the base mix that is pumped into the holding tanks, when it comes out of the continuous freezer, everything is still filled by hand, so it's a very hands-on um, process in which we do it. Um, up until two years ago, we were still adding inclusions by hand, so as the tubs were being filled, um, I would be sprinkling in things like the honeycomb, um, the choc chips into mint choc chip, I'd be sprinkling them in by hand wow. um, in layers in, in amongst the ice cream. Um, but two years ago, we, we purchased a, a fruit feeder, which connects onto the continuous machine and automatically um, puts them inclusions in for me, but it, it evenly spreads them throughout. Whereas when I was doing it, it was only being put in, in layers. Even the little tubs from the, from the uh, Gaiety Theatre and things? Yep, even the little tubs <laughs> from the Gaiety <laughs> Theatre. So we have, well, not so little. No. <laughs> we, we have a, an automatic filler, um, but all it does is deposit a small amount of ice cream in. Um, we then have to lid each tub coming off. 
um, and then we pack it into crates and freeze it down. But the tubs come off at one a second. Wow. So we make um, cups every month. Um, we make two or three times a month and we make 10,000 at a time. So because everything is put into crates and the lids are all put on by hand by the end of the day my hand's ready to fall off so. well the chocolate ice cream in the holding tank there when could that be at as ice cream um well the minute it's pumped into the holding tank so i could be on the machine i could be on the continuous freezer as the mix is going into the holding tank sucking it out and making it into ice cream it's it's that quick and it could be at a few hours later yeah it could be at a few hours wow. later so all of the mix that comes out of the continuous freezer um is exactly the same as whippy so a lot of people don't realize this um, they think a whippy ice cream is completely different in most cases they're right because a lot of companies over here use a uht mix which is like a long life mix um, but all of our whippy mix is fresh and we use the same base mix for our whippy mix as we do for our ice cream so it's just not as frozen it's just not as frozen right. so every bit of ice cream that comes out of a continuous freezer is whippy the only difference is, is that it's then put into a tub and it's frozen down to minus 25 um, and it's held at minus 25 until it goes into our customers where it'll be then put down to a storage of minus 18. Whippy is about minus six and that's the only difference between our whippy ice cream and our normal ice cream is the temperature. Wow, we're in December now and you're still making ice cream. The weather's not that warm out. No, <laughs> um, I think because we're all hardy manxies we uh, we all tend to eat ice cream regardless of whatever the weather. So on a Sunday afternoon, you can come down to Peel Parlor um, and you'll find rows and rows of cars parked outside with people eating ice cream. <laughs> What's your favorite flavor? Um, I'm boring, to be honest with you. I like vanilla. Davison and his dad, Ian Davison from Davison's Ice Cream uh, with their factory at Peel that I went round. And the investment they put in there, Kiri, absolutely wonderful. They're transforming their machines so they can uh, maybe you know broaden it to export more you know because they can say now oh yes we can produce that sort of amount so that's the the reason behind that investment of course and using all that locally produced and manx milk and cream and as much as the ingredients as you possibly can get uh, here on the island which is fabulous it really is a great omen for the Manx dairy farmers. You know, the quality that goes into the products. You know, those cows are at the, are part of the grass accreditation scheme. So they're out in our fields around the Isle of Man for so many days of the year, you know, compared to other parts of the world where, you know, some of those cows never see daylight, really. The grass is all brought to them. So that's definitely got to be something special in the quality of that ice cream used there in Peel. Yeah, and uh, just so enthusiastic. You, you walk around there with them and the passion they've got for it, you know, and they, and they say, well, we could make cheaper ice cream by buying cheaper ingredients but you know that that's not why they're in it for you know which was a nice touch i think that they said and that's it and to keep reinventing you know all the different flavors you know it's everything in there isn't there now mm. and what's your favorite my favorite used to be rum and raisin uh, i've gone to a raspberry ripple oh the, do you know what the most popular is go on have a guess chocolate has no, to be vanilla still the most popular wow. and the second most popular on the isle of man is a relatively new one oh salted caramel goodness me yeah. well dean also sponsors a lot of the agricultural events too we must remember these people keep putting back into the manx economy as well don't they they yeah. support the local farmers in what they do so you know, the appreciation is there from us too to him it is <laughs> Well, there, that 
wraps it up like a Christmas present, Kiri, doesn't it? The last in this current series of Countryside. We're back in February with the new series. Thank you very much indeed. You've been a joy to be sitting opposite me uh, in this series of Countryside. Our producer, Sarah Hendy, we must thank her for the work she's done uh, in this series as well. And great ice cream we fitted in, books and the mart as well this week. It's really special. The Isle of Man is full of great, great people, organisations and associations that make our job so much easier, Simon. We've got so much to report and, and so little time a lot of the time, isn't there? Yeah, there is indeed. All right, we look forward to seeing you then. But until February, have a great Christmas, a wonderful New Year from the team here at Manx Radio and Countryside. And from me, Simon Clark. And me, Kerry Kermode. We'll see you next year. Ta-da. Bye-bye.